Our Book of Revelation sermon series continues today, as I said earlier, and uh, we're headed for the next four Sundays after today, and then we'll, I believe, conclude that study uh, for now. We have been looking at the last book of the Bible, and uh, all of its descriptive, amazing uh, narrative about the end of time. The book of Revelation was written for several purposes, but a primary purpose that we look at when we hear the book of Revelation is that it describes the end of the world. It describes a time period that is coming very soon. Uh, We're told um, that the earth as we know it and life as we know it is going to be totally changed. I know that's hard for me to believe sometimes. At least that's how I feel about it. I think, well, you know, people have been saying that for 2,000 years. But you know, they, you know what they were saying before Noah's flood, too? It won't happen. And events that have taken place in the world, uh, when you look throughout human history, you see all kinds of events and times and places where the amazing things of God's revelation have happened. They always happen on a given day, and a moment, and a second in time. In the book of Revelation, everything it tells us, tells us that there will be the rapture of the church, and then the unfolding of a seven-year period that's described in the book of Revelation. We have been looking through those chapters that describe the seven-year time period, and today we're in the fourth Sunday out of four at looking at a seven-year time period. We are literally looking today at the last few days or weeks of that time period. The seven final bowls of God's wrath. We read that... uh, Two weeks ago, we read that God said that there would be seven angels who would blow their trumpets, and there would be an unveiling of seven events that would literally bring to the end human time. And in them, some of the uh, strongest, and uh, I would say wildest, that's not the right word, but amazing Acts of judgment of God upon the earth and upon humanity at that time. The seven final bowls of God's wrath. Would you go to that next slide, please? Thank you. Revelation chapter 15, verse 1, we read two weeks ago. And here is kind of, kind of not really the beginning, but near the beginning of the telling of these last events. And this is what we find here. John the Revelator says, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. So we are told there that it's coming to an end, and that all this description is coming to an end. Sometimes we may have the view when we read the book of Revelation that this stuff goes on and on and on forever and ever and it's just so overwhelming that we, we really can't understand it. But that's really not true. 
I feel that way, especially after preaching through the book of Revelation. Honestly, it's not as confusing as it was to me, I feel like in my heart, as when I started this series. There are a lot of things that we can see in it that God is trying to say to us. And in chapter 15, he says, it's coming to an end. It will be concluded in our scripture today at the end of chapter 19. Chapter 17 through 19 is where our focus is today. I want to describe to you or give you a picture that uh, kind of summarizes a little bit these three chapters. This is just a very human picture. You all have seen an accordion. You've heard an accordion played. You know, somebody stands or sits or on a stool and they have this big instrument and they play the keys on one hand and then they press it in and out and you have sounds that come back and forth. They're louder and quiet and, and uh, kind of back and forth. Chapter 17 through 19 to me kind of represent the going back and forth of three time periods. The past, the present, and the future that will lead up to the last verses of chapter 19 in the end of human history. It's like as I read these chapters, I feel this, this ethos or this passion of these descriptions that are heavy and, and I hear they're loud, they're about the past and, and all the way back to the Old Testament in fact. And all the story and, and uh, the story of, of Christianity and, and then present day, what's going to be going on during these three and a half years, these, this seven-year period that's described in here. And it's a sad story. It's a mournful story. And then as that accordion goes in and out, then it, it says what's going to happen. Chapter 19, the end of time. Uh, going in and out and describing all the events. That's what these three chapters that I want to focus on today remind me of. The past, the present, and the future back and forth. The past being an, an accumulation of the ugliness of sin and what sin has done to mankind and to the world. The present describes that overwhelming reality of the force of evil. Again, as the accordion's going out, we read in these chapters this description of, of how evil has taken over humanity. And when God withdraws His Spirit, See, today we live in the time, a time where God's Spirit is present in the life of believers and in the world. But in these last seven years, it seems to me that God has withdrawn His Spirit. And so Satan and evil and horrible stuff that we see today will be magnified, I don't know, tenfold, twentyfold compared to what it is in our day, which... For us, sometimes it just seems so horrible what's going on. The accumulation. And then the floodgate that will be opened in the sixth and the seventh seal that we began to talk about last week. The floodgate of God's response to evil. And we say, why doesn't God do something about it? Uh, you know, why does God allow? Uh, those are the kind of questions I've always had. I still have them. But I know that chapter 17, 18, and 19 describe that God is going to make it right. And in the horribleness of what happens there, God is going to establish a new heaven and a new earth and an eternity, a future 
a future for those that choose Him. A future that we can look forward to and know enough about in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, to see what God, some of the things God has planned. I know I've described the book of Revelation as being behind a great curtain. All the events of the end. If you can just pretend this curtain goes across the platform. And for just a little while, God allows John to pull back the curtain and see chapter 17 through 19 in all the book of Revelation for a moment, and then he pulls it back. So we have that memory, that memory that's in the scriptures. It gives us a little bit of what God is going to do. The sixth bowl you may remember. Again, that was two weeks ago and I spoke a little bit about it last week. Is the preparation on earth for the Antichrist and the rulers of the armies of the world to come together for the last battle. The sixth bowl. That's the preparation. Talked about the drying up of the Euphrates River which many commentators believe is literally a part of the process of the military maneuvers that will take place from the three continents of Africa and Europe and Asia and to bring all the armies of the world and the military to full bore on one area called Armageddon, that plain 20 mile uh, uh, square area of Israel in northern Israel that, that is listed as the place where the final military battle will take place on earth. We also read a a couple weeks ago that there would be three impure spirits that will be poured out in these last few days, these last few weeks. The impure spirits that will come out of two humans and Satan himself. The two beasts. The first beast, which we, we believe is the Antichrist. And the second one, called the false prophet in the chapters that we read. They are human leaders who will destructively lead the world absolutely into oblivion in the last three and a half years of human time. That spirit of evilness will come out of them and will will, uh, be spread over the earth during this time. And then the seventh bowl is described as a massive earthquake at the same time. Again, the two events of the sixth bowl and the seventh bowl will be intertwined. And according to the seventh bowl of God's fury, of God's wrath, a massive earthquake will accompany these events of the armies coming together at Armageddon. Whatever the human circumstances bring that together. Massive earthquakes around the world that seem to literally say that the cities of the earth will be destroyed and many people will be killed. Maybe most people that are left who have who are unrepentant as I read this description of the seventh bowl. There will be such devastation from the seventh bowl and then the final battle. We come back this morning to the two events that I want to cover today. The first is the subject of Babylon. If you have your Bible open, you'll see that chapters 17 and 18 and into 19 describe what we call Babylon. And what is found throughout uh, these chapters of the horribleness of of Babylon. Babylon, of course, is a historic city. 
It's a historic place that was a part of the Old Testament. It's a part of the New Testament. It's a city that was the, the greatest city on earth at one time. It was a historic city, uh, both of the older time periods and the newer. Uh, the name Babylon is mentioned in the Scriptures more than any other city except Jerusalem. So Babylon has a historical meaning to our Bible and how we understand God's revelation in the Christian faith. Certainly in the book of Daniel that we studied last year and we talked about what it said about Babylon, you saw a common thread with Revelation of, of the meaning of Babylon and what the significance of the name was. Here in these chapters, we have numerous repetitions of the name Babylon and the mystery of them. These chapters have a great deal of mystery to them about what is meant by Babylon and the symbolism that uh, they portray. And that has led to different interpretations of these two and a half chapters. I said a moment ago, if you have your Bible open and you turn to chapter 17 and 18, you'll just see this continuous narrative of the horribleness of Babylon and how God is going to deal with it in the seventh plague and at the end of time, at the same time as the battle of, Arm, of Armageddon. There is a reality when you read these chapters of the physical presence of Babylon, a physical city that John seems to see will exist during this time. Now, in order for that to happen, there has to be a rebuilding of Babylon because Babylon today is not a great city. It's an area mostly of ruins and small towns around it. So, if indeed this is a literal presentation of a city, it will be rebuilt at some point before the battle of Armageddon. Certainly, Babylon represents the possibility of a physical city that's described in these chapters. But more importantly, and far more overwhelmingly to me, is these chapters portray the meaning of Babylon, the spiritual identity of Babylon. Chapter 17 is generally more about the, uh, the terrible things that are happening in Babylon and the sins that have accumulated there and how offensive it is to God. And then chapter 18 describes also a place of evil where evil reigns and evil is on the seat of influence for all the nations and the world around it. Babylon is the embodiment of evil. It is the scriptural, in these two chapters, it is a symbol of evil. And you might say this way, the personification of Satan's throne, where all kinds of hateful, destructive, horrendous events are taking place. Again, magnified more than what we have in our world today, which certainly at times we look at the evil and we think, how could it get any worse? Well, if we understand the book of Revelation to accurately describe what it will be like, it will be so far worse in these days than it is today. Babylon represents rebellion against God. And it's described that way in, uh, in, in these chapters. Babylon represents the, the idea, the, the passion of rejecting God's authority. And so when that name is written, it's, it's describing a hatefulness toward God 
and that I will not bow to the Creator. I will not acknowledge the Creator. Certainly there's a Babylon in our world today. Unrepentant. Babylon represents unrepentant souls that are shaking their fist at God and all the things about God. Babylon represents in these chapters mankind saying, I'm in charge. I do not acknowledge a Creator. It's all about me. It's all about what I want. It's all about what I choose and what I do. It is a total rejection of the existence of God. And what is happening in Babylon is the consequences of that attitude and spirit. It's the culmination of centuries of man shaking his fist at God. It's like the summary of what happens when we reject God's authority and we decide that He is not our Creator. Representing this rebellion. Also, Babylon encompasses and describes every immoral and sinful act in the history of mankind. And many are described in these chapters. The idolatry, the greed, the murder, the sexual immorality. I think, wow, Pastor, you really picked a zinger today, didn't you? That's what these chapters are. I'm going to read now from chapter 17. I tried to describe it a little bit. and I'm going to read selective verses from these two chapters. If you have your Bible and you want to follow along, in chapter 17, I'm going to beginning and, and, and read the first seven verses here. <clears throat> One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman seated on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who pour testimony to Jesus. How long has it been since you read chapter 17 of Revelation? Wow. It's a picture of what sin is. It's a picture of what influence is when we're not living what we know God tells us to do. It's heavy. Then in verse 6 it says, I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. That's a reference to all the people during this time period that are being put to death by hateful humans who are persecuting the people of God. We see a little bit of that in our day today. But in the end of time, during this time, there will be such mass martyrdom And Revelation 17 and 18 recognizes that as one of the sins of Babylon. Chapter 18, verse 2. With a mighty voice he shouted, 
Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. Again, another description of the horribleness that summarizes Babylon and how horrible it is. Verse 9, When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn for her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. There will be a recognition of the destruction of sin of Babylon. And then verse 21, one more. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. Again, is this a description of a physical city? Probably. Is it a description of the finality, the final record of the conclusion of sin? Absolutely, and maybe both. And intermixed throughout this same passage is the voices of the angels and those that are worshiping God who are proclaiming that this is God's judgment. This is the time of God's just judgment. The scripture that I read earlier was found in here. That God gives an assurance in the midst of this chapter that He is in control. This isn't random things that are happening, but God is bringing about chapters 17, 18, and 19. Here are five statements that I want to make about Babylon. Babylon describes the slavery of sin's grip. It describes the slavery that sin does to the hearts of people. We think, what is Babylon? What does it represent? What does it uh, help us to understand about the reality of good and evil? How does the Bible describe this question of good and evil? Well, in one way, it describes it as the slavery of sin's grip and the horribleness of sin's grip on humanity and how rejecting God's Spirit and walking away from the authority of God has unleashed these events that are described in the book of Revelation. Number two, Babylon is described here as the false, as the final state of man's rebellion against God. It's the final moment of man's rebellion. It is the ultimate, the apex, the climax of what happens because of man's rejection of God's authority. When Adam chose to eat the fruit and Eve did, there began this process in humanity that destroyed his state and his ability to do what's right. The only thing that could restore it is the power of Christ on the cross. The Lamb, which will come riding in a few verses in chapter 19 onto the scene and will make it right in the final battle. But Babylon represents that final condition of what sin will do, of what sin does to your heart 
and your spirit if you don't repent and turn away from it in rejecting God. Babylon also represents both human forces at work during this time and God's forces. Babylon represents this physical uh, description of Armageddon and battles from, from armies from all over. We talk about Mog and Magog, Russia and Europe and who knows where, United States and Israel and Iraq and all the coming together of these political and military forces are described in, in these final battles. But it also describes them in spiritual terms. That it's not just what you see on the ground with the physical battles, but there's a spiritual battle going on that includes God's forces. And they will be poured out in chapter 19, the second half of chapter 19. They will be poured out at Armageddon. And there will be a coming together of both humanity and divinity in the end of time. Babylon is the culmination of the attitude and the spirit, I did it my way. Babylon is the culmination of the idea that man has chosen, man has been given a free will and a free choice. And, and uh, Babylon is that personification of, I did what I wanted to do. I did not respond to the Creator, but I did what I wanted to do. And when it's I want to do, and we carry it out, we are subjecting ourselves to all kinds of consequences about not hearing God's authority and responding to Him. I did it my way. And number five is this. Babylon is the dragging of unrepentant souls into hell. That's heavy. That's what Revelation 17 through 19 shows us. Babylon represents the final act of humanity that rejects God's authority into hell and eternity without God. Some will repent during this time. Several weeks ago, I read the scriptures that tell us that. During the horribleness of these seven bowls, there will be many, many people that will come to repentance, we're told. Many of them will be martyred at this time. Not all of them will. Some will survive to the end of chapter 19. 144,000, if we understand uh, it correctly, 144,000 will, and there could be millions and millions and millions, it could be billions of people who survive if they turn to Christ. And many will. I don't know how many. Maybe that number is just a random number, but many people will come to Christ during this time. And they'll be there in chapter 20 when we read about the, the millennium. We'll read a description about them. But Babylon represents and is the final act of dragging unrepentant souls when there'll be no more chance after the battle of Armageddon for them to repent and turn to God. Throughout these chapters, from chapter 8 on, there have been opportunities to repent, and some do. But those that do not will be taken into hell, and then the, the, we'll read in the next chapter, will be cast into the lake of fire of God's judgment. Some will repent, but most 
will go to the battle of Armageddon, whether physically present or existent on the earth when all the events take place of the final battle. The battle of Armageddon is the second coming of Christ. It is the event that will take place when Christ comes back. He will be riding on a white horse. And He will bring with Him uh, the armies of heaven. In a unique description that uh, is uh, nowhere else found like this, in chapter 19, we will have the pouring out of heaven's forces. Whatever that is, physically and spiritually, will join the earth. Will come to the earth. I mean, we've read things about the tens of thousands times 10,000 angels in heaven and who knows how many and what kind of creatures we've read of some of them in these chapters. But when Christ comes back, He will be bringing back the throngs of heaven with Him. They will meet up with the armies of the earth. This clash that will be both physical and spiritual. There will be guns and bombs and I don't know, nuclear weapons, biological weapons, I don't know. They will be, to understate something, weapons of mass destruction. And the horrendousness and pervasiveness of the destruction of the earth will take place at this time. The two beasts will be captured. I've described this, but I haven't read it. I think I'm going to stop and I'm going to read these verses. Maybe the best thing for all of us is just simply to hear what the text says. I'm going to go back at verse 11 of chapter 19, and I'm going to read through verse 21. This is what the Scriptures say about the final moment of Armageddon. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, and whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. I love that part of the verse. With justice, God knows what is right. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, the horses and the riders, and the flesh of people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who had performed the sign on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped the image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, the rest were killed with a sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh.
the horrendous day of judgment is come. The two beasts, chapter 13, the Antichrist and the false prophet will be captured. Two human kings, or whatever they're called, who have led the world astray. They're going to be treated different, unique to everyone else. They will be captured, it says, and they will be cast into the lake of fire, the fiery lake of burning sulfur, the judgment. And then chapter 20 describes the final act, the seizing of Satan. At that moment when the two beasts are cast into the fiery lake of fire, we read in verse 1 of chapter 20 that an angel of the Lord comes down. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand the great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Would you go on to that slide that depicts that verse, please? I want to just dwell on that very quickly or for a moment today. At the end of chapter 19, the first two verses of chapter 20, we have the end of Satan. When I say the end, not the final act with Satan, because Satan's judgment is going to come at the end of a thousand years. Satan's power to deceive and hurt people here is ended. It's over. There is no more influence that Satan has. But we're told... When I read this and I've thought about this week, it just keeps coming back to me. Simply it says, an angel from heaven. Of all that Satan has done destructive, all it takes is one angel from heaven to come and to wrap him up and cast him into the great abyss. And he'll be there for a thousand years. And for reasons that we'll talk about, I believe, Lord willing, next week, our subject is going to be that a thousand years that is described in the first part of chapter 20. A thousand years. We think of all the time periods of human history. The time period of man's free will comes to an end here. And then there will be a thousand year millennium it's called. Chapter 20 describes that thousand years. And I plan for that to be our, our subject next week as we come together and uh, we move toward the completion of this study. Would you stand with me please? Lord God, I don't even know quite how to pray. This stuff is so wild and amazing and deep. And for me, thought-provoking. God, I pray that we would see who You are, Your existence, Your authority, Your power. And God, we would see that it was the Lamb riding on the horse who gave His life on the cross so that we could turn away from sin. The only power over sin is the power of the cross. I pray that we would know that and see that 
and sense that today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for coming and listening. God bless.